if you are um, as appreciative of the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as I am, you would probably agree with me that the doctor was given to a great deal of hyperbole. He liked to exaggerate when he preached. Right here is the, is the one message that will change everything in the, in the Christian life. Right here, the gospel hinges on this. But I think I would agree with the good doctor when he says that one of the most important words in the scriptures is, but... There are few more important moments in the Bible than when we have been brought to fully understand ourselves and our sin and our situation before God, and then to hear the Scriptures say, but, but now, but here is what God says, here is what God will do. Last week's passage ended on a very hard note which would have been very painful for Isaiah's first hearers to receive. We're going to look at that. Turn to Isaiah 42, verse 18. Isaiah had been looking forward to the coming righteous servant who would bring about God's kingdom and justice. And we can see that he's pointing to Jesus, but even as he does so, that term servant is also pointed back at Israel. It's pointed at them as God's failed servant. They would one day need Jesus to come as a substitute servant in their place because of their failure. Israel was meant to serve God by giving an account of his salvation and his law, but look at what happened. Isaiah 42, 18 through 20. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Israel was blind to God's salvation. They were deaf to his law. And Isaiah says this failure directly leads to their exile in Babylon. Look at verses 24 and 25. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The, the exile in Babylon, then, is this sobering judgment, but also a sobering reminder to God's people that their confidence in themselves was terribly misplaced. They had grown arrogant. They had become self-satisfied. Remember Hezekiah showing the envoy from Babylon all of his treasure. Look at how incredible I am. Look at how great my kingdom is. So the exile was this stark reminder to God's people that apart from God, who were they? Enslaved sinners. And they would learn how, who they were exiled in Babylon just as they had once learned who they were in slavery in Egypt. This passage laid low our pride as well. It shows us what our arrogance deserves, the disaster that our confidence in ourselves is inevitably going to lead to. So, how would we feel? How might Isaiah's first hearers have felt? 
when they heard him say, but now, thus says the Lord. That is how our passage begins this morning. Once we have seen the utter failure of our strength, our ability, our self-conscious, self-confidence, God has something to say. Let's look at chapter 43, verses 1 to 7. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. So our first point this morning is this. Having reminded his people who they are in their own strength, God now reminds them of who he is and thus of who they are in him. If the exile was this rude wake-up call to show Israel who they were apart from God, then the promised return from exile would be a reminder of who God was and who that people were only because of him. God begins this passage by telling Israel that he formed them, he created them. And he's not primarily referring to the physical act of creation by which he made all the world, but he's talking about how he created them as a people. He called Abraham, he gave Jacob the name of Israel, he formed slaves in Egypt into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This creation happened through redemption, by redeeming them, not just out of slavery in Egypt, but out of that fallen state of all humanity. So God reminds them he is their savior. He says, I am your God, and Calvin reminds us that he's not just saying, I'm the God that you picked to be your God. He is saying, I have chosen to be your God. He made them his own. So Isaiah tells us that God says, I have called you by my name. You are mine. This is God's word to his people in pain and in exile. They have his name. That is covenant language. God has bound himself to them. The God who created the universe, who governs the seasons, the days, the years, who holds everything together from moment to moment, who made every plant and animal to operate in all of their complexity, the one who keeps the world together, has given his name to his people like a husband to his bride. And he says to those who have sinned against him, you are mine. I am your God and you are mine. God is not grumpy that he is bound to this unworthy, sinful people. He says, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. This isn't just a contractual relationship. 
God loves his people dearly. They're his most precious possession. And this love is meant to be their comfort and their confidence that he is clearly never going to abandon them. God says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now notice that God does not tell his people, I love you, and so you will never face any storms or flames. God's love is deeper and richer than that. It cares about us more than that. For God to create a people who faced no trials would be for God to create a people who rejected him. A child who faces no discipline and teaching is absolutely going to believe that they deserve to be free from pain because they are awesome. Israel showed this themselves before the exile. Look around and you'll see it well enough in our own culture, which is incredibly affluent and rejects God more than anyone has before. A people without discipline is a people who ruins themselves and refuses to bring glory to God. And so God says, yes, trials are going to come. We also see that these trials will be varied. Isaiah is speaking to a people in exile or who are about to go to exile, but God is not just speaking of one trial or one promise of deliverance. Waters and rivers and fires and flames, many trials of multiple kinds will face God's people. But God who calls himself the savior of his people will be there in every single one of those trials. He will even work those trials for their discipline, their instruction, their endurance. He is even going to work every opposition that they face for the sake of their own salvation. God says, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. We know that God subjected Egypt to plagues and drowning and death, and he did that to deliver his people. Isaiah lists them among other nations to show that there is no opponent, there is no obstacle that God will deem too high a cost to save his people. God loves his people so much that he is going to make sure that all of history works towards their redemption and perseverance. The idea here that Isaiah gives of a ransom God giving men in return, in exchange for his peoples, points to God's willingness to give a substitute to deliver his people. He will give whatever is necessary in their place so that they might be saved from the obstacles that they have brought even on themselves, even from their sins. Isaiah is pointing towards the ultimate cost that God says he is willing to give as a substitute for his people. He is even willing to give the Messiah himself. With these promises from God in hand, God twice repeats a command to his people. Fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Fear not, for you are mine. I am with you. God says the reason they need not fear is because they can rest confident in his salvation. He will surely provide for them. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is amazing language. In the Old Testament, it is rare to hear God speak of his fatherhood of individual members of his people. 
calling them his offspring, his sons and daughters, that shows a personal love and commitment to them that would have been fantastically shocking. That relationship is going to get more and more revealed until the New Testament, as Jesus then comes and shows that the reason that enemies and exiles, even in Isaiah's day, could be called sons and daughters is because the only begotten Son of God took the place of an enemy on the cross and was rejected by God for us. This is the beautiful high, high cost of us being adopted by God called his sons and daughters. And that is the cost of you being told now to rest secure in the arms of your father without fear. So that Paul can say in Romans 8, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Our next point is this. God promises his people that Though their exile shows what they themselves can accomplish, he will surely save them to vindicate his own name and character. God, God lays out through Isaiah a courtroom scene, something we see a few times in Isaiah, and God willingly puts himself on trial before all the world. He puts to the test his own existence, his own good character, versus all the idols, everything people worship in the world apart from him. He tells them, bring forward your witnesses to testify to what your idols have done, to what your hopes have accomplished for you. But as Isaiah serves as the court reporter, he makes this shocking revelation. God has brought out blind and deaf witnesses. Look at 43, 8 through 10. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I want to stop there. Isaiah is maintaining this image that we heard last week of Israel as the blind and deaf servant. He says they're blind, yet have eyes. They are deaf, yet have ears. God gave them every faculty necessary to be perfect witnesses to his glory and his love. This trial should have been a slam dunk. It should have been easy to win. The other witnesses are all there defending sticks and stones and bits of gum that they found on the sidewalk and saying why this is the best God, why this is a good Deliverer. God's people should have been able to tell them all about the Exodus, all about the conquest of Canaan. They should have been able to recite God's perfect law to show his good character, to show his love. But God's people totally fail in their role as witnesses. They've forgotten God's salvation. They're blind. They never learned his law. They're deaf. And so God provides his own defense. Let's continue. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? God testifies that before anything was made, 
before there was any foreign god or idol that we had dreamed up, he existed. He was there in eternity past. He will definitely be be there for all eternity. And the chief evidence that God puts forward of who he is, that his word is true, is his promises of salvation and the salvation that he has accomplished. I declared and saved and proclaimed. God desires that the evidence for who he is would be found in him making and keeping promises to save his people. God knows. The whole reason that so many people are seeking to know if there's a God at all, the whole reason that they are dreaming up gods, the whole reason that we are offering our worship desperately is that we want to know if there is a way to be saved. We don't just want to know what's true. We're not that interested in just being right. I want the correct religion. I want to understand the universe as it is. We want to know if there is hope. You'll even see those who have cast their lot with humanism and atheism saying, I'm here because this is what's best, because this is what will be best for the world. People want to know if there is an answer for despair and pain and death. So for God to prove that he is the one true God is not just for him to show that he exists, but to show that he has given the true actual answer to pain and sin and death. It is for God to show that he is the God who saves his people. That is how he proves who he is. What this means for God's people is that God has bound up his glory. The proof of his character, even the proof of his existence, he has bound all of that up to their salvation. The God of the universe is willing to let his reputation stand or fall on the promises he has made to his people and the salvation that he provides to them. If God says that the exile of his people is meant to show them who they are, show them their own sin, then he promises that the return from exile will be the way that he vindicates his own name as the one who declared covenant love and fidelity to them who said, you are mine. And that sin that made them such failures as witnesses is instead going to make them into evidence. It will become painfully clear that a people is being saved who didn't do anything to save themselves. Somehow a people is being saved who did everything to show that they ought to have remained in exile and slavery. God is going to demonstrate his grace, his love, his existence, his glory by saving such an unworthy people. But then again, he says, be my witnesses. I'm making amazing promises to you. Don't close your eyes and ears. Trust and bear witness to what I am saying. And then God goes on to make new, wonderful promises to them. Let's read verses 14 to 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. You might feel like God's people felt during their exile in Babylon. You're in a season of trials. You're seeing all of your effort and your ability fail. Do you feel in Isaiah's language like you've gone out of the water and into the fire? from one trial to another, that there is no rest, that there is no reprieve? Do you feel the weight of your own sin? Have you started to see who God is and feared his justice? What does God say to you? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Fear not, you are mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. I have redeemed you. I have given my name to you. I want to close by offering us a number of comforts that God gives us in our distress. In Jesus, those comforts that Isaiah offered become more clear, more magnified. Jesus has secured them for us. Now, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not trust in him, I would tell you that that fear and anxiety you feel is just a foretaste of the distress of living apart from God's love forever. But trust in Jesus. To know him is being offered to you right now. To say that his cross was on my behalf, his resurrection was to secure me an eternal place in his kingdom. And he's offering to you right now to know, knowing his peace. Not just a feeling of peace, but more deeply with that, a cessation of hostilities with God. A perfect eternal rest with God and with Jesus. Come to him and these comforts can be yours as well. And if he is yours, hear how God comforts us in our distress. First, God loves us with a deeper love than we can ever know. When we were God's enemies, living so far from him, arrogant in our sin, with no hope of salvation, God made a way where a way seemed impossible. He sent his only son to die in our place so that we might be made his sons and daughters. And so God assures us, he has created us, not just as people, but as his people. He has already shown us greater love than we could fathom or understand. Even the hardest trials you experience are not meant to show you that God has stopped loving you. It is to show you that he is committed to you. His promise was never that you would not experience trials. Believe it or not, even those trials are rooted in his love. His promise to you is that there is no trial, no flood, no fire through which he will not be with you. His promises, his hope, his love are all yours through storms and flames. He will not let any circumstance, even your own sin, take you from him. When you are feeling the weight of your own failure or the cruelty of this fallen world, any trial or pain, what does the Lord say to you? You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. You belong to God. 
Next, God has bound himself to us and has bound up his own glory to our salvation. When you are afraid that your burden is too heavy or your situation is too bleak, that things are too hopeless, why are God's promises still unshakable? Because when he made you his own, he bound up his glory to you. When he called you by his name, he committed to you, and he stakes his reputation on keeping the promises that he made to you. He was willing to pay the greatest price, his only begotten son, to redeem you. What will he fail to do now that he has already given you Jesus? He stakes his glory on his promise that he will deliver you from every evil deed and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. Next, God has demonstrated time and again that he is able to do everything he promises. God wants you to look back. Look back through his word on everything he has accomplished, every promise he made, every promise that was kept. The exodus, the deliverance from Babylon, all of that is pointing towards the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is already finished. Our Savior has actually already risen from the dead. We have already been justified by faith in him. How can we look forward with fear of the future when you can already testify that in history that is done? And that this has been done for you. Open your eyes to everything God has done. Let assurance and thankfulness and praise in the promises he has already kept give you confidence for everything he promises he will do. Next, God has made you to bear witness and worship for his salvation. God desires that you rest in him, be comforted in him, trust in him, because this is how we will bear witness to his salvation and worship him for it. When we forget what God has done, when we forget what God has promised, when we give in to fear, we are acting like blind and deaf witnesses. We are closing our eyes and our ears to the testimony of all of creation and all of history and all of his word that he is our redeemer and he will surely bring our salvation to completion. Do not let the trials of this world upset your confidence. Don't let them upset your rest and your worship of God for all that he has done for you. Beloved, I want you to think about a day in the future, a day that is definitely coming when all of the trials are done, when you are sitting around the banqueting table and Abraham is there, and David is there, and Jacob is there, and Augustine is there, and Calvin is there, and Spurgeon is there, and all of those loved ones who love the Lord before you that you lost are there with you. When everything has been made new, when Jesus has brought everyone to himself who is his, when sin and sadness are wiped out forever, and we are going to talk about the promises that God has made. We are going to talk about his promised salvation, and then we'll talk about the day that he accomplished it. We'll talk together about what it was like when Jesus appeared. We'll talk about what it was like when he drew us to himself. We'll talk about what we witnessed when the whole world was made new. Think about how you will feel on that day. 
Think about the confidence and the joy and the rest with which you will speak and worship around the banqueting table of the Lord. Has God not proven so trustworthy that you can offer him that same rest and confidence and praise even today as you look forward to those final promises being brought to completion? Has he not proven to you that his plan is so perfect, his promises is so sure, his character so trustworthy, his love so great, his salvation already so wonderfully accomplished in Jesus. He deserves that same glory and confidence and rest from you even right now. Take your rest from that. You were not made for fear. You were not made for blindness to God's salvation. You weren't made for deafness to his word. You were made to open your eyes and ears to know this, to be assured in it, to be confident, to praise God for his salvation. Enjoy that praise you were made for, even now, just as you will definitely enjoy it for all of eternity. All of this means that trusting in God's certain promises is his answer to your fear and anxiety. Why do you need to live in despair and fear and worry? Fear not, God has redeemed you. Fear not, he is with you. He has saved you. Jesus has saved us. And he will complete your salvation no matter what trials and storms are coming tomorrow because he loves you. He loves you so much and you are precious to him. That is God's good medicine for our fear. Let this be the fountain of your joy and hope and rest. Today, as we take Lord's Supper together, we are bearing witness. We are bearing witness before God, before all the world. We're bearing witness to each other. We're even bearing witness to our own weak and feeble hearts of what God has surely accomplished for us. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out. That has happened. He rose. That has happened. He has defeated death. It is accomplished. Your salvation is secure. And we know then that our future salvation is secure. And so we proclaim now both the salvation that has been offered to us and the salvation that will surely be brought about. This is our witness that we have no reason to fear. This isn't just witnessing, then it is worship. Because our trust and rest in God's salvation gives him glory, the glory that he alone deserves. We come now with confident rest and trust in him. And when we do that, then this supper is a foretaste of the banqueting table in eternity where we will know that rest and joy forever. So let's enjoy this meal together as a foretaste of the worship and the rest that we will know for eternity.